0: Thanks be to God. An excerpt from Ben Witherington's book, Encounters with Jesus. Call me the Canaanite woman. I am from the region of Tyre and Sidon, now part of the Syrian province of the Roman Empire. The Romans called the region Syrophoenicia. I am not a Jew but I had heard of the healer called Yeshua. Imagine my surprise when he showed up in my very region exactly at the time When my daughter desperately needed his help. One day Jesus met a Gentile. Many of you know that I love baseball. I love everything about baseball. I love the game. I love the ballparks. I love the stats. I love the tradition around baseball. I love the poetry of baseball. I love the metaphysical perfection that is baseball. I even like the song for baseball, it's anthem. The song most identified with the game. You know the song, right? Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I ever get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame, for it's won two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. This is why I'm not the choir director. That's why I couldn't make it in the charismatic church. I had to end up here in the reformed church because I can't sing. But think about that line. It's one, two, three strikes, you're out. Do you see the metaphysical perfection in that? Three strikes, you're out. Not two, not four, three. And there's something perfect about threes, right? This is Trinity Sunday, obviously. The Trinity, three. The three points to a triangle, three laws of thermodynamics. There might be four, I don't know. The physicists, don't, don't yell at me, but three laws of thermodynamics, three points to a sermon, right? And in biblical interpretation, there is this thing called the law of threes. And that is, in the Bible, very common, a very common feature is to find a story. And when the story is told, it's told in threes. It's like a pattern where you expect it. Consider one example, the Good Samaritan, right? Who comes along? First a priest, then a Levite, and then the Good Samaritan, Three. Perfect story. And there is a sense in hearing those stories, if you were part of the audience, you would be geared up and ready for the punchline to come at three, right? First one comes, second one comes, boom. The third one is where the punchline is, just like baseball. Three strikes and you're out. But what's so intriguing about our text this morning is that when Jesus met this Gentile, that law of threes is broken in the Scripture. The unexpected happens in this text. So this morning in our time together, I want to look at this text and try to figure out why was that law broken here? And what does that tell us about God and ourselves? And the way I want to look at the text is kind of like an at-bat in baseball. I want to look at it pitch by pitch or, if you will, strike by strike. And I want to acknowledge uh, the work of uh, Frances Taylor Gench in her book uh, back to the Well, which kind of inspired and gave me the kind of this uh, inspirational framework for the sermon and, and some of its content as well. I want to acknowledge her work. So let's look at this. Let's look here at the first pitch. Now before we do that, I want to do a little bit of background, a couple of details about the background and circumstances of our text, particularly relating to the background of the woman and the geography. The background of the woman and the geography. And the reason I want to do this is because I think if we grasp these two things, a little of this background, it'll help us better understand what can be a kind of a difficult text to get our hands around normally. So let's look at a couple of pieces of background. First, the background of the woman herself. What do we know about her? Well, what does Matthew tell us? He tells us this. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting. Now, Clearly, Matthew is telling us this is a non-Jewish person, right? This is a Gentile that Jesus is dealing with. But by referring to her as a Canaanite, that is really odd. It's unusual language because there were no Canaanites around anymore. They were those Old Testament people. If you remember the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan, right? These were the people, the bad people, that had to be driven out of the land of promise the Canaanites of the Old Testament. It's a very Old Testament idea. And to refer to this woman in the first century as a Canaanite is just kind of historically out of place. One commentator noted it would be akin to someone today in the 21st century referring to someone from Denmark as a Viking, right? It's out of place, it's out of time, but yet Matthew does it. Why does he do it? Because he's writing to primarily a Jewish audience right and what's the worst possible thing that you can conceive of as in a Jewish audience it would be a Canaanite they are the really bad the worst of the Gentiles so Matthew is setting this up with maximum prejudice he wants them to view this woman as the one wearing the black hat as the villain he fills it with prejudice not only is she a gentile but she's a gentile of the gentiles she is the worst of them she is a canaanite a pagan an ethnic and religious outsider she is the enemy he tells us that right at the beginning a canaanite woman the second piece of background relates to the geography just prior to this text, Jesus was down in Jerusalem and he was battling with the Pharisees. And then he goes up north of Galilee to this region known as Tyre and Sidon. If you put up that map for a moment, that might give us a little bit of help here. And if you can see there, in the central area, we have Galilee with the blue area, the blue arrow there. And then up north and coastal, we have these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, in that area of Phoenicia. And this is important for us to know. It tells us a couple things. First, Jesus is moving away from Jerusalem, right? He's going up into Gentile territory or near Gentile territory. It's not clear whether Jesus goes into the Gentile territory or she comes into his territory in the Jewish territory. I think it's the latter. The scripture speaks about her approaching. I think she comes into Jewish territory. But anyways, he's going up into this area of Tyre and Sidon, which is clearly near a pagan Gentile territory. And what's important to know about the territory she came from is that it was really prosperous. Tyre and Sidon was a rich area. It was also a very kind of, uh, well, the word for it then would be it was very Hellenized. That is, it imbibed and embodied the best of Greek culture in it, right? Where the Jews were resistant to outside culture, whether it be Roman or Greek, here they embraced it entirely they were sophisticated wealthy prosperous people in Tyre and Sidon in fact Galilee served as the bread basket if you will for Tyre and Sidon they relied on Galilee and the Jews for their bread for that was really the bread basket of the area and in some ways it's not hard for us to think about the dynamics here because it wouldn't be all that different than thinking about someone on the coast, right? Somebody from L.A. and San Francisco, that's Sidon and right? And Galilee and the Jews there were kind of viewed as the flyover states, the, the rednecks. They were the people from Ohio and Nebraska, right? These are the, from Kansas, people who fed. That's how they viewed each other. That's kind of the dynamic that was going on in this. And that cueing us into that geography is important. And why this is important for this text is we often think of any interchange between Jesus and someone else where Jesus is in the power position, right? He's male, he's Jewish, he's the Lord. But it could be very possible, and I think it is true, that in this case, this woman was not poor and she was not the one in a marginalized situation, but rather she held a certain level of power. She perhaps looked down upon the Galileans, which would have been very typical of people from Tyre and Sidon. So in this exchange, she may be coming in, looking at Jesus and the boys there, the disciples, as a bunch of rednecks from Galilee. And she was this prosperous, Hellenized, sophisticated, educated person from Tyre and Sidon. Now as I paint that picture, I want to acknowledge that there is a great debate about that. Some, some commentators think she's this poor woman, uh, you know, kind of uh, marginalized and, and, and kind of in a struggling situation, but there's a lot of good reason, a lot of good commentaries, and I believe it based on the fact that she's referred herself as a Greek in Mark's gospel because she was so Hellenized, she's from a wealthy area. I think she is a wealthy, educated, sophisticated outsider prone to thinking that Jews are lesser than her, particularly of the Galilean variety, and she enters into Jesus' territory. I think that's the picture here. I could be wrong, but I think that's what it is based on my research. So here she comes. You can take that map down. So here comes this wealthy, sophisticated, educated outsider from Tyre and Sidon who bursts on the scene, and on top of that, she's really loud. (laughs) She comes shouting, right? The scripture says, and if you look at the language there, it it conveys the idea in the original of being just kind of speaking way out of loud, way out loud, right? More than the situation uh, requires. Matthew says, just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting. So think about that picture. If I have that picture right, here she comes, bursting into Jesus' territory. This woman who is probably like to think that she's better than these people from galilee she comes in she shouts she shouts, this have mercy on me lord son of david my daughter is tormented by a demon she bursts on that scene you could kind of imagine her getting out of her escalade right with her gucci purse or whatever and coming into this kind of territory and saying you know to these galilean rednecks help me and so she takes a swing And she does it for good reason, right? She has a daughter who's ill and she needs help. And so she comes, she heard about this Jesus. She comes to him pleading for help. And what does Jesus do when she asks for help? Of course, he has compassion on her. This is Jesus, right? So he healed her daughter. Story's over. Sermon ends. Amen. That's not what happens, is it? What does he do? He totally ignores her. He gives her the cold shoulder. Verse 23, but he did not, he that is Jesus, did not answer her at all. Swing and a miss. Strike one. But she's not deterred by that cold shoulder. She comes back, right? She gets back into the batter's box, if you will, and she goes in there to take another swing. And this time, Jesus answers her. He actually acknowledges her, Right? But he doesn't give her the answer she wants. Verse 24, this is what Jesus says in the second response. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he begins by giving her the cold shoulder, but now he kind of blows her off with a theological answer, right? It's not a wrong answer. He's basically saying, I am the Jewish Messiah. I am coming to the Jews first, and then I will go to the Gentiles. I know you're used to getting whatever you want when you want it, but it's not your time to ask me of anything. And Jesus had told his own disciples, don't go into the Gentile territories. Don't take the gospel there yet. Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there was an order here. Step one, gospel comes to Israel. Step two, only after that happens does a go to the Gentiles. But this loud, well-educated, upper-class, privileged Gentile comes in from the coast, demanding that everything be changed for her. You might picture her a little bit like a first-century Karen. I mean it, yeah. Or a little bit like those people in that college admission scandal, right? Yeah, we know there's rules and there's an order, but, but, you know, we're different than the other people. And so she comes and she demands something that Jesus says is out of order, and basically, here we go, she says, swing and a miss, strike two. Two strikes. She's down 0-2, right? One strike left and she's out. Now maybe at this point you're thinking, Jesus is being really hard on this Gentile woman. I mean, she does have a daughter with a problem. What is going on here? Well, if you feel that way, it's only going to get worse. Because here's what happens next. The woman is undeterred by the cold shoulder. She's undeterred by the theological blow-off that Jesus gives her. And she gets into the batter's box again for a third pitch. Verse 25, But she came and knelt before him, getting up in his face, right, saying, Lord, help me. And then Jesus rears back and he hurls the cheddar, right? He gives her the high heat, a brushback pitch, a high and inside He gives her basically what is an insult, a dare I say it, an ethnic slur. Verse 26, Jesus answered, right? She's at his feet, she's kneeling before him. Lord help me. He says this it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. You caught that, right? He referred to the woman as a dog. Jesus gets canceled. He can't delete that tweet, right? It's right there in the scriptures. He called her a dog. Now, in our culture, we love dogs. We spend an inordinate amount of money on dogs. It's crazy how much money we spend on dogs. We knit them sweaters. We feed them organic food, right? We do all this thing for them. The worst thing is we walk around with those little baggies, you know. This is why I will not have a dog. Because if you came from outer space and you landed here and you saw that moment, what would you think the higher creature is? We love dogs, but even in our dog-loving culture that we have, right, to call someone a dog is still an insult, right? No one wants to be called a dog even today. And in Jesus' day, it was even worse to be called a dog. The only thing worse than a dog in that society was a pig. But Jesus calls her a dog. Now that very fact that our Lord and Savior used what we could argue is an ethnic slur leads to a level of cognitive dissonance in and among biblical scholars, Christian, uh, Christians themselves, you know, how can this be true? And so they've gone through a lot of ways of trying to explain it to get Jesus off the hook. One of them, they explain it by saying, well, it's not an authentic Jesus story. It wasn't real, right? It was something that later later Christians added to the scriptures. I find that the least persuasive just by the obvious fact why would later Christians want to put in a story in the Bible that represented Jesus in what would be considered perhaps a negative light? That doesn't make any sense at all. So I don't buy that one. Other scholars say, well, he used the diminutive form of the word. He wasn't really calling her a dog. He was calling her a little puppy. <laughs> I'm serious. People make this argument. <laughs> Just a cute little puppy. No, no. Okay, look. It, yeah, or it, This is still, calling somebody a small dog, still not any better than calling them a dog. Or, you know, it's, it's still an insult. Other people just say, here is Jesus' humanity. Here is Jesus on a bad day, right? She caught him at a bad moment. One scholar describes it as seeing Jesus caught with his compassion down. This was just a bad day we're seeing the humanity of Jesus Christ here. I don't really find any of those entirely satisfying to me. And I think perhaps the only way I can make sense of all of this is by going back to that power differential I mentioned between Tyre and Sidon and Galilee, between this woman and the Galileans. In this story, if my interpretation is correct about it, the Gentile woman is the privileged person. She is likely profited off of the Galileans, likely taken bread out of the mouth of poor Jewish people. One scholar puts it this way, the economically stronger Tyrians probably often took bread out of the mouths of the Jewish rural population when they used their superior financial means to buy up the grain supply in the countryside. Think about that. That same scholar suggests that what Jesus was really saying is something like this. First, let the poor people in the Jewish rural areas be satisfied, for it is not good to take poor people's food and throw it to the rich Gentiles in the cities. I think that's probably right. So I think Jesus really said it. I think he really meant it. And dare I say it, I think she really deserved it. But however you come to it, it is clear that that response is is strike three. That's another no. And it's three strikes and you're out, right? The cold shoulder, the theological blow off, the insult, she's missed three times, she is out. But here's where the law is broken. Here's the extraordinary thing about our text, right? After receiving all of those things from Jesus, I mean, come on, she's got the cold shoulder, the theological blow-off, the insult. What does this woman do? She dusts herself off, right? She gets up from the knockdown pitch and she enters the batter box again and she replies to Jesus' insult in this way, verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs... Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I love that moment. I wish I could have been in the room or wherever this happened in that moment. I have to imagine a few jaws dropped, right? What a response. Heads must have turned. I mean, she leaned into this with a masterful reply, demonstrating her unwillingness to give up. It was a great comeback line and it worked it worked verse 28 then jesus answered her woman great is your faith let it be done for you as you wish and her daughter was healed instantly that's amazing now if we buy the idea the interpretation I'm giving you that she's from this upper class, well-educated, coastal elite kind of person who benefited from the labors of the Galileans and looked down upon them, that maybe this is that moment that she stopped thinking of herself as better than other people, where she put herself beneath them. Yes, Lord, yes, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's saying to him, I'll take the insult, I'll own it, maybe I even deserve it, and I will even take the leftovers, I just want some. Sharon Ring writes this. She writes, Her reply, the woman's reply here, relinquishes the place of privilege and moves her into the place of receiving only what is left over, the place where the poor of the region have always been. She humbles herself in that moment before God, and God loves when we humble ourselves. He rewards that, and He rewarded it in her. Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. She had three strikes against her. She was out, but then she knocked it out of the park. This story breaks all the rules. What an extraordinary piece of scripture. So what do we learn from this, folks? What are the lessons here for us? Let me briefly suggest three lessons, three points of application from this. The first lesson here, I think, is a lesson for privileged people. This text is primarily redemptive historical. It's primarily about this idea, as Heidi mentioned in the sermon, about the Gentile inclusion. This was kind of a first fruits of what was going to explode after Pentecost, the Gentile inclusion. That's true. But what I find so intriguing about this particular Gentile, if I have the interpretation correct, is that she was likely a a person of power and privilege. A person like us, like most of us. And if that's the case then one of the ancillary lessons we can draw from this text is that when you are privileged and you are encountering those who are less privileged you might benefit from recognizing your privilege displaying a little humility and maybe even enduring an insult that's kind of what happened here i remember my first year in law school you go, you, know, you go to law school, it's so different than college because like, you, know, you, get, you get a lot of feedback. And, but in law school, like, you go your whole first semester and you don't get any tests. You know? It's basically like you take a final at the end and no one knows how they're doing and everybody's kind of lost and scared. What's going on? Do I get this? Do I don't get this? And I remember those early on days, everybody's stressed out, you know, the whole class, the student body, the first years, the 1Ls. And early on, uh, we learned that there was a special group gathered where minority students in the school were getting private meetings with the professor for additional study time, for extra help. And I remember that causing a little bit of like, you know, a little bit of ruckus on, on, on the campus, like, you know, among, among the students, like, why is this, this seems unfair, like, why, are, why is this being done for some and not for others? And to be honest with you, I felt that way too. I was lost, I was floundering on. How am I doing? I wish I had this kind of opportunity. But later on, I got it. I got it once I could, you know, this is back in 1991, so like being woke in 1991 meant you didn't fall asleep in class. You know, it was a different world. But later on in life, I got it, right? I got it when I started thinking about all the privileges that I've had in my life. Perhaps maybe they didn't in theirs. And so sometimes we just need to humble ourselves. And in some ways, Jesus and those boys from Galilee make this woman come to terms with her privilege. I think that's part of what's going on in this dynamic. And she does it, and she gets it, and God likes it and rewards her for it. And I think that's a good thing for us to keep in mind in our lives. Particularly when we may deal with people who are less privileged than ourselves. Second, I think there's a lesson here for those who are down 0-2. Those who are down 0-2. We have that saying about people, right? You, that person has two strikes against them. And sometimes it happens in life, whether through our bad choices or just the hand we got dealt out in life. We, we enter into the box, you will, if you will, with an 0-2 count, zero balls, two strikes. And a lot of people feel that way about their lives. As a pastor, I meet a lot of people who feel that way, even with their relationship with God. It's 0-2, I'm in the hole, what chance do I have? If you look at the statistics, if you're 0-2, and and an 0-2 count as a batter, your batting average is somewhere between 157 to 177. There's not a lot of chance for success. It's 0-2, you're likely to strike out. And some people feel that way about life. They feel that way about how God looks at them. But one of the good news in this text, part of the good news here, is that we have that rule broken. With God, you get more than three strikes. That's what this woman got in this story. The gospel breaks the rules. It breaks the laws of all that we can think of. It doesn't act like we act towards people. God is loving and he's open and he takes people in these situations even when you're down 0-2. Everything the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. With the gospel, you get more than three strikes. And that's good news. And third and finally, there's a lesson here for overly contented Christians. And I mean contented in a bad way. We usually think of contentment as a good thing. Here I'm suggesting it's a bad thing. And this may be the most important lesson for us this morning. Jesus commends this woman for the magnitude of her faith. Woman, great is your faith. And the way she demonstrated the greatness of her faith was through her persistence, her doggedness, her hunger. She wanted more and she would not take no for an answer. She was hungry and she was willing to eat the crumbs that fell from Jesus' table because she wanted more of Jesus. And my question for you this morning is do you? Do you want more? Are you hungry at all in your faith? And I say that because we are really just getting back together as a church. And the past two years have taken their toll in so many ways. And one of them is people checking out spiritually. You can call it a lack of zeal, a lack of passion, a lack of commitment. Or we can simply call it a lack of hunger. We've lost our hunger for the bread of life. I want to get that back. In myself, in our church, in our lives, a hunger for God, a hunger like this woman had. Maybe we can learn something from this loud, privileged Karen from Tyre and Sidon because she got one important thing right. She wanted more, more of and more from Jesus. And she would not let anything stop her from getting it. Not the cold shoulder, not the theological blow-off, not even an insult. Why? Because she was hungry for the Master's bread. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Maybe it's time for us, for you, for us here at RCRC to get hungry, hungry for the things of God. Let's pray.